I'd like to start off by introducing myself in this way. There's a story in the back of the fourth edition of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous called Window of Opportunity. And in this story, the young man is trying to decide whether he's an alcoholic or not. And he's speaking with his girlfriend. He says, I'm trying to, you know, figure this out. And she says, well, my mom has a drinking problem, but she's not an alcoholic. And she tells him that an alcoholic is a person that has to have a drink every day. And a person that has a drinking problem is a person that once they take the first drink, they can't stop. So by that definition, my name's Tim. I'm an alcoholic with a drinking problem. <laughs> and I am fortunate through this program, wonderful sponsorship, and wonderful higher power to have my disease of alcoholism in remission for or since March 10th of 2019. You know, what I would like to share with you is this. And I thought, well, I have all these things I want to tell you. And I could tell you for hours. A good friend of mine told me once, speak from the heart and God will put the words in your mouth. So that's where we're at. I left my big book in the car, so whatever I talk about from the big book is, as Chuck B. would say, paraphrased, because <laughs> I won't get the wording right. My hope is I don't need to tell you what I want you to hear. What I need to have happen is somebody needs to hear something I have to say that may change the trajectory of their life. So <clears throat> I'm going to share my experience and my strength and my hope with you in a story of a drunk named Lee. I was born and raised here in Tulsa. I had a fairly normal childhood. I wound up being sent to a private Catholic school that I did not want to go to. I had to wear a shirt. I had to wear a blazer. There's a reason why I don't have a shirt or a tie and a blazer on tonight. That was part of my opposition. When I was in middle school, I knew that I had an addictive personality at that point. When I was much younger, several neighborhood kids and I would go over to Southern Hills to the Caddyshack and we would buy cigarettes out of the machine, put your coins in, pull the lever and the cigarettes come out the bottom. And when we couldn't find the money to do that, we would go down to the creek and cut grapevine and smoke grapevine. That was my first high. That was my first mind-altering substance, we'll say that. We did that quite a bit, and I enjoyed that feeling. And when I was in middle school, you know, it's an outside issue, but it's just a minor part of my story, I started smoking marijuana at 13. I smoked marijuana until I was 
26 or 27 years old. And I didn't drink. I didn't like alcohol. I don't want to drink beer with you. You do your beer. I'll do my pot. Life is good. Away we go. And so when I was asked to stop doing that, I had to find something else. Slowly but surely, the something else became alcohol. Never really a beer drinker, more of a wine drinker or a champagne drinker or whatever. You know, from about 26, it started off socially, and it progressed over time. We, my ex-wife and I, had a very good life here in Tulsa. Tulsa had been very good to us. And so we decided to look for a way to get back to the community. And so we were on the search for the ultimate thing that was going to allow us to give back to the community. And she was an ER nurse, and she came home one day and said, I might have found it. And she said, Dr. Wallace is putting together a disaster plan for the hospital. And he ran across this thing called a disaster medical assistance team. So we went to the very first meeting, became a few of the founding members, and we went to our first exercise, and she said, I'm done, I'm out. I don't do snakes, I don't do spiders. I'm out of here. Have a good time, I'll take care of the kids. <laughs> That's exactly what I did. My first disaster respond to natural and man-made disasters. So my first disaster response was Hurricane Andrew in 1992. We didn't really know what a man-made disaster was, but that's what we do. We responded to Andrew, and then nothing happened. And we're exercising, and we're exercising, and we're exercising. And I'm starting to think, why in the hell are we doing this? And then at 9.07 a.m. on April 19th, 1995, my phone rang and said, roll the troops, we're going. Where are we going? Something's happened in Oklahoma City. Okay. So we went, and we were on site two hours after the bomb went off, and we came home the next morning. We saw there were 16 patients in this facility when we arrived, and we saw another 14 patients, and then the hospitals were able to take them back in. And we sat all night and listened to the last rescue, the last live rescue. About nine o'clock the next morning, they said, you're done here, go home, and we did. And every one of these responses has had a different impact on my life. I have taken away a new, attitude on life from every single response. Hurricanes and earthquake came along. I was recruiting paramedics on the morning of September 11th, 2001, and the instructor came out and said, you're probably going to need to go to work. So I found out what was going on, and as soon as I walk out, my phone's going ballistic, and September 11th, 2001, started a 49-day journey and a lifetime. It started out as a vocation. It turned into a career.
All I wanted to do is help people at the worst time of their life, even if it's just for this minute. So I came home from the World Trade Center on October 31st, 2001. The deployments continue on. In August of 2005, I went to the Gulf Coast of Mississippi three days before Hurricane Katrina hit. And I spent from August 26th to Thanksgiving Day on the Gulf Coast. A fantastic deployment. We got to set, touch so many lives, people in their worst time of need, and we got to help them right now. As a responder, Hurricane Katrina was my last deployment. In 2003, I was asked to go to Washington and start doing some project work for the system, and I did, gratefully. And in 2006, I was offered the opportunity to take a two-year term position. You're here for two years, and you're gone. And my wife was agreeable to that. During this time, from 2003 to 2006, I'm staying in a hotel, and every night after work, we'd go to happy hour. And then we'd go to dinner, and I might have a glass of wine with dinner. This went on for about two years. But before I got out of the hotel, I was going to happy hour, having a drink with dinner, and going back to the bar at the hotel, and getting a glass of wine and going to my room. And then right before the end, I was going back down and getting another glass of wine and going back up to my room. 2008, without permission, I didn't ask. The forgiveness didn't go very well. I took a permanent position with the National Disaster Medical System in Washington, D.C. At that point, my drinking escalated. I was now alone in Washington, D.C. I didn't have comrades to run around with, go to happy hour, go to dinner. I left the office. I went to dinner usually the same place. They had my glass of wine waiting for me on the counter when I pulled up, and I had dinner, another glass of wine, I went home. And then I had dinner, two glasses of wine, went home. Dinner, two glasses of wine, went across to the grocery store and got a bottle of wine, and went home. It, it just continued to escalate from 2008 to about 2012, and at 2012, I was roaring. I was getting up at 4 a.m., getting ready, going to work, go eat, go home, drink until 1.30, and either go to sleep or pass out. I think it was usually go to sleep at that point. And, you know, when you're intoxicated and you're lonely in Washington and you're bored, you look at Craigslist for companionship. And lo and behold, I saw this ad, seeking short-term boyfriend. I met this woman. She was going to be in Washington for six months. She's gone back to Toronto. This sounds like a really good time. She also happened to be wealthy, and she liked to buy nice things, and she liked to buy nice wine. Even better. This, this continues. At the end of six months, she's extended in Washington. So she stayed, she moved in. So she's living in Washington, living in Toronto. The fact that she liked to buy fine things and fine wine, and she liked to buy a lot of it for me. 
And I drank it, of course. I'm now, when she's not there, drinking from 4.30 in the morning until I go to the office. I'm going to the office. I'm coming home. I don't stop at the restaurant. Sometimes I'll buy a pizza and I'll cut it in half and I'll cook half of it and then I won't even eat that. The escalation continues. I have medical issues. I have severe respiratory issues. And those really came to light in about 2014. And I had made an appointment with a pulmonologist. As a matter of fact, the day before this appointment with the pulmonologist, my boss walks in. He says, we need to have a talk. Okay. That was a normal thing. He says, you appear to either be drunk or high all the time. You're argumentative and combative conversationally, and none of your employees want to work for you anymore. How do I get out of this? He says, oh, and by the way, you're always calling in on Tuesday. I don't know where in the hell that came from, but it was right. I don't know why Tuesday. I couldn't tell you. So I said, well, you know, I got this respiratory thing going on. Maybe I'm not getting enough oxygen to my brain. <laughs> Sounded good to me. <laughs> He's a physician. He didn't say anything. He said, I want you to go to EAP, Employee Assistance Program, and I want you to bring back a signed document that you were there. So I call EAP, and they say, number one, we won't sign any document saying you were here. And what kind of help are you looking for? And I says, well, I don't know. What do you have? <laughs> <laughs> well, we can offer you a physical exercise program, and we can offer you a stop smoking program. But I go back and I tell Andy, they got nothing. Physical exercise, gym membership, or stop smoking. He says, okay, you did what I asked. Now, number one, I wasn't ready to stop drinking. Had I been at the right place, I might have an additional five years of sobriety, but I wasn't there. The medical problems are worse. It's not only the respiratory conditions. I have hemiplegic migraines. And when I get a migraine, I lose my whole right side. And it appears that I've had a stroke. And that lasts for about two hours. If you would just stick an ax in my head, it would feel better. In the big book where it talks about the analogy of the man having a headache, hitting himself in the head with hammer, I didn't hit myself in the head with hammer, but I would jab pins into the side of my head and I would beat my head on the corner of the bedside table because it distracted me from the headache. Now we're going to the neurologist. They said, you are in such a shape that you should not be living alone. And that was problematic because I'm in Washington, D.C., short-term girlfriends there sometimes, and I got nobody. So she had the perfect answer. Why don't you move to Toronto? They've told you you can't live alone, so you can't stay here but my job says you have to be in Washington. Went for a disability thing, 
They kind of went for it for a while while we figure out what's going on. I go to Toronto. Still have the apartment in Washington. Things just went off the rails. The longer I was in Toronto, the more unhappy I was. And, oh, by the way, now she is not going to Washington. She's going to London. I'm there alone in Toronto working remotely. This went on for a while, and it actually went on until 2019, February. And she came home to Toronto and said, I think we need to have a talk. She said, I'm going to be spending 90% of my time in, Toronto, or in London for probably the next five years. You are miserable. You hate it here. Probably time for you to go home. I didn't object to that. I was miserable. And I was drinking around the clock. In Toronto, when you go to the liquor store, you don't buy a bottle. I have a backpack. It would hold three 1.75 liters or milliliters. That's what I bought because it might snow the next day. <laughs> I'm not going to get caught without. So I was not a closet drinker, I was a backpack drinker. <laughs> my backpack sat right next to my desk, and all I had to do was reach down, oh my God. Mid-February, I decided to make this move back to Tulsa. My logic at that time was not the greatest, but okay. I had decided that it was cheaper to fly to Tulsa, rent a van in Tulsa, drive the van to Toronto, pick up my stuff, and drive home. Part of that was the cost. You can rent a van in Tulsa and take it to Canada and bring it back. That's not bad. If you rent a van in Toronto and bring it to Tulsa and don't take it back, they want a heck of a lot of money to get that vehicle back. So I was talking to my sister, and she said, why don't you take Kristen with you? Keep you company. And I was like, sure, I'll take Kristen. So I call Kristen. Kristen is my niece. She can't go because she didn't have a passport. So I venture to Toronto, venture back. And if you know Kristen, she's like a bulldog. And once she bites on, she does not let go. <laughs> and she sensed that I might have a problem. So she started talking to me about my drinking, and this went on for a couple weeks. And she convinces me to go to a meeting, and I went because if I go, she'll stop asking. <laughs> I show up at my first meeting at Cornerstone, and I walk up, and all the people are out there smoking and vaping and having a great time, and I'm feeling like crap, and I can't stand there, so I sit down on the bench, and I watch them all go in, and Kristen's not there, and I'm thinking, it's time to go, and I hear this voice that says, are you going to come inside? And I don't think I even looked up, and I said, yeah, but I'm waiting for my niece, escape hatch, you'll go inside. He says, well, can I sit down with you? <laughs> 
Sure. Hi, my name's Alex. What's your name? Alex M. saved my life. Sitting on a bench outside of an AA meeting that I had not gotten into yet. If I had left, I would not have been back. I went into that meeting with the assistance of Alex and Kristen when she got there. And there was this jolly fellow at the podium. His name is Josh A. And he's from Outlaw Safecrackers in Claremore, or was. And he was talking. And I heard a couple things that made sense. But what I heard that night was, if you still have alcohol, go home and drink it. That's what I did. <laughs> the next night, I drive to Tulsa Big Book. 40 miles an hour down Memorial. My truck won't go 40 miles an hour. I don't know why. Wouldn't do it. We go to Tulsa Big Book. You need to find a sponsor. You need to find... Okay. I take a couple names. I get back in my truck. I go to drive home. My truck will not get to 40 miles an hour. The next day, we go to Safe Harbor, 36 in Yale, noon meeting. On the way up 36th Street, it's 30 mile an hour speed limit. My truck will not get up to 20 miles an hour. It's too fast. It's too fast. So that meeting got over and she's still yakking in my ear. Da -da 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 -da. <laughs> I'm going home. I go home. I'm going down 36th Street, and I hit the jumping off point. I could not get my truck up to 20 miles an hour, and I knew that something bad was about to happen. I was probably about to get arrested, DUI, obstructing traffic, and I made a decision. And so I called Kristen and said, why don't you take me to detox? And she did. We got to detox, and she had the fight of her life on her hand because they wanted me to go to detox and rehab. I said, I'll go to detox. I won't go to rehab because I can get away with being gone a week. I can't be gone for 30 days. I have to explain to someone what I'm doing. I will lose my security clearances. So I went to detox. That was on March 9th. March 10th is my sobriety date. March 13th, I get out of detox at 4.30 in the afternoon. And I drag myself, because I can hardly walk, my first meeting not under the influence of alcohol. I sit down and I start scanning the room. Man, those people didn't look like they were having fun. And as I get over there, there's the Havenettes, and this girl smiles at me. I thought, it's going to be okay. Keep looking around. Those people aren't having any fun. And I thought, hmm, I like that girl. <laughs> Today, that girl is my wife. <laughs> and I am absolutely ecstatic that she is. Now... Boy, met girl, 
on the campus of AA. You know what? Ups, downs, all arounds. But I wouldn't give her up for the world. The next morning, I walked into the Awakening Non-Smoking Group. And when I walked in the door, I saw a man that I did not want to see there. He is a family friend of 50 years. And he happened to be at the podium. And I was like, oh, no, this isn't very good. And then he was leading the beginner's meeting. And after the beginner's meeting, he came up and he said, Jim, you have got to get a sponsor and you've got to do it now. He said, I'm scared. Okay, do you sponsor? Yes, I do. You have to ask. Oh, okay. <laughs> Will you be my sponsor? I'll be your temporary sponsor. He told me to do the following things, and if I did, he would be my sponsor. Go to Central Service, buy a big book, buy a 12 and 12, read the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution, more about alcoholism, we agnostics, and call me. I walked in the door with a blank sheet of paper. I literally did, because I knew what had been going on didn't work. Anyway, he's still my sponsor today. I've got four and a half years of sobriety, but right before my third birthday, days before my third birthday, something happened. A friend of mine that I had given rides to before the pandemic, long story short, he <clears throat> died and I didn't know it. And he and I had kind of stopped talking. And I talked to Randy on October 15th. I didn't hear from him. I tried calling him back a week or so later. He didn't answer the phone. I tried him back in November. He didn't answer the phone. I gave up. I didn't think any more about it. And then in March, Janice says to me one morning, did you know Randy died? Oh my God, the roof came off. I was angry that nobody had told me that my friend had died. Natural causes, natural causes. He was sick, he had cancer. I was mad. And I was mad at you all. How could you let this happen and not let me know? Did 10th step. And then there comes this little thing that says, yeah, what's your part in it? So I called my sponsor, told him what had happened. He said, well, you want to talk about it? I said, no, not yet. Because my sponsor, when I call him with a problem, he says, so what are you going to do now? Well, I knew what he was going to ask. What are you going to do now? And I said, I need to think on it. And he said, okay. All night, Friday night, I'm driving my Uber. Saturday, I'm angry. Sunday morning, on supplemental oxygen since right before the pandemic. I pull up to pick up this man, and he's in a walker, sitting up on the curb. I hated 
picking up people in wheelchairs or walkers. Not because of them, because I had to take off my oxygen, get out of the car, get their equipment, get it in the trunk, get back in, get my oxygen on, totally out of breath. So he got himself to the door. I take his walker, put it in the trunk, get back in the car, put on the oxygen. And he said, why don't we just sit here a minute? So we sat there a moment. So I think I'm good now. Away we went. And I'm driving him home. And we're talking about stuff. And he said, yeah, well, what I say doesn't mean anything. I'm just an old drunk named Lee. Turned around and looked at him and I said, Lee, have you had a drink today? He said, no, I haven't had a drink since 1994, but I'll always be a drunk. Well, that took care of that. The conversation was on. <laughs> Lee heard a fourth step and a fifth step and a sixth step, and we did a seventh step together, and we got to his house. I got out of the car, got his walker, got it for him. He takes the walker out, turns it around on the curb, and sits down. He says, we're not done yet. Okay. So we do 11th step. Give me the, call, the knowledge of God's will and the power to carry it out. And we talked and went through that. And he says, I think we're done here. And he turns around, he gets his walker, and he goes up the sidewalk, and I'm standing there leaning against the back of the car. And he stops and he turns around and he says, do you know what's just happened here? I said, yeah, we did a fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eleventh step. He said, no. You've been standing there without your oxygen for over 15 minutes. And I got back in the car and I couldn't breathe. I literally could not breathe. That's one alcoholic talking to another. But what I realized, that was not a spiritual experience. That was my higher power talking to me through another alcoholic. The spiritual experience had happened first. Spiritual experience, spiritual awakening, psychic change. Because in that period of three days and that absolute rage, I never thought about taking a drink. That's what Lee did for me. My sobriety has been a roller coaster health-wise, life on life's terms. I was told in the fall of 2021 by my pulmonologist that said, I cannot do anything else for you. He said, I want you to do your research on lung transplantation. In six months, we're going to have a talk. And then I went and had to do some test or something, and about three months later, he called and said, yeah, we need to have the talk now, not in three months. So I went and saw him, and he said, here's a list of lung transplantation facilities. Pick three. So I picked three. He ruled out the first two. 
University of Texas Southwestern Lung Transplantation Hospital. I went there in January of 2022. You know, as it says at the end of the spiritual experience, the only thing that can keep a man in total ignorance is contempt prior to investigation. I knew all the answers before I went down there as to why this was not going to work. I live in Tulsa, I'm too far away if I get on the list. I don't want to be in the hospital for three months. I don't want to spend another nine months in Dallas. I had it all ruled out. Yeah, they defeated every one of those arguments when we talked. But had I not gone, I wouldn't be standing here. I opted that I did not want to do transplantation. I feel like my higher power gave me a body or a temple to roam this earth in. And I haven't taken very good care of it. And he didn't equip me with spare parts. I have no problem being an organ donor, but at this point I don't want to do this. And there is an alternative, not an alternative, an option prior that's called endobronchial valve placement. And they do a bronchoscopy and they go down to your throat, into your lung, and they place one-way valves in your lung. And it's like a lung reduction surgery without being cut open. I talked to that surgeon for the first time on March 9th, 2022. March 9th, 2022. 364 days later, they placed six endobronchial valves in the upper lobe of my right lung. What that allowed me to do, not immediately, that was March. In June, I put down the supplemental oxygen. I picked it up three times. Now, they can go back when this starts going down, hopefully at the end of two years, and they can do the middle lobe, which is much riskier, but I'm in the hospital with all the people that know what they're doing. They're more concerned than I am. And I could get another six months to two years out of that. But my message is this. If I hadn't shown up at the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I wouldn't be here. The miracles that have taken place in my life in these past four and a half years are beyond description. And I'm very glad to be here, and I'm very glad to be able to share my experience and my strength and my hope. And my hope is this, that some other person here can hear my solution and maybe it'll work for them. This has been a production of childrenofchaos.net and we invite you to share your thoughts with us via email to comments at childrenofchaos.net. Children of Chaos is a forum to discuss topics related to and in concert with addiction and recovery in America, is not affiliated with, endorsed, or financed by any recovery or treatment program, organization, or institution. Any views, thoughts, or opinions expressed by an individual in this venue are solely that of the individual 
and do not reflect the views, policies, or position of any specific recovery-based entity or organization.